Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Andrew Hill from the Financial Times, and welcome to the Business Books podcast, special extra edition from New York, on the day after the award of the Bracken Bauer Prize for the best business book proposal by an author under 35. We're here in New York with a panel to discuss what happens to your proposal, how do you take it from a proposal to publication, and any issues relating to that question. And with me in the room are Christy Fletcher, an agent at Fletcher & Company, Hollis Heimbach of HarperCollins, the publisher, Christopher Clearfield, who was co-author of 2015's winning Brackenbauer proposal, which is soon to be published as Meltdown with Andras Tilchik, his co-author, and the three finalists in this year's prize, the winner, Meren Gould, Alex Lazaro, and Michael Matala. So we're going to discuss a little bit about how the business book proposals make their way to our bookshelves. But first, I just wanted to ask Hollis and Christy just to give a little bit of an overview of what the health of the business book market is like at the moment in the United States. Hollis, would you like to just sure. tell us a little bit about what kind of market these finalists are pitching into? Um, the market is, is very stable and solid, and there's been some growth in the hardcover format. Um, the ebook format is still healthy, but not growing by leaps and bounds as it was a few years ago when devices were coming onto the market. And there's been real growth in audio through formats like Audible and, and Apple. It seems like a lot of audio business audio verbatim text okay. of the of the of the book in audio that seems to be a real growth area not just in the business category but across nonfiction and fiction as well so that's on the on on that side of the business I think the retailing landscape is you know still volatile I would say you know there are a few retailers who account for a lot of the sales I think we Amazon is obviously the, the leader there. But the independent bookstore market, at least in the United States, is growing again, is healthy. There are a lot of very strong independent retailers. So I think it's actually a fairly optimistic time. I'd be interested in what Christy thinks. Christy? Yeah, I would concur with everything that you said. Audio has been a huge upside for people of late. Um, I think there still seems to be a strong appetite for books in this space. I think the appetites are changing yes. a little bit as the political climate is changing. Um, but I think, you know, from an agent agent perspective, I think there still seems to be strong interest in business economics, you know, things that sort of feel relevant to the culture and also people who are looking to do, um, you know, improvement in their career and sort of finding ways to gain an edge. But I think Hollis is right. I mean, the, the hardcover market seems very stable um, ebooks have kind of flattened out for the most part. Um, and audio seems to be the most sort of exciting, yeah. expansive part of the market right now. So does that mean that a business book author has to have a voice for radio? 
<laughs> no, I, um, in many cases, in most cases, a professional narrator right. does, does the reading. Many authors, in my experience, are excited about doing the reading until they find out that it's five days in a studio and they lose their voice in day two because it turns out professional na- narrators are trained to do that. In some cases, it makes sense to have the author read because the book is very personal or it's very voicey. But in many cases, we've found from feedback from users of audiobooks that they actually start to find narrators that they really love and they like and they prefer that to you know the inconsistencies of an unprofessional reader. Right. Chris, coming to this sort of fresh when you brought your proposal to publishers, having won the prize in 2015, what, what did you find about the... The state of the market or the, uh, the the challenges of bringing a book proposal into a more formal publishable form it's interesting i don't know how as so as first-time authors i don't know how universal this experience is but the two things that struck me are one you should have some way of earning money for food during the time that you'll write the book because i think while advances are you know they exist um they certainly aren't enough in in my experience especially with a co-author to sustain yourself for you know the year to two years that it'll take to go from starting the book to to really um finishing it and having it out so i think it's not to say that the book needs to be a you know a side hustle but you shouldn't plan on sort of scrooge mcduck style swimming through piles of money as you as you write which is you know just a statement that needs to be something you're aware of if that's something you you're having to to plan around the other thing i thought was interesting was i think there's still a lot of risk aversion in the publishing industry which is interesting you know as a as an established author, I think publishers are are willing to bet on you based on previous performance. But as a new author, it's sort of hard to see from the outside why some people find resonance with these ideas and, and some people don't. I think our proposal got submitted to 15, 10 or 15 different editors. And we had real interest from a couple, including Hollis. And, you know, ultimately, I think found, found a, a, a good home. But it's interesting to see what the, you know, 10 who weren't interested in the book, the reasons that they gave for not being interested. And so obviously there's a diversity of, of views. So a, a good agent, I think, helps cast a wide net um, for the book. But it's also interesting from what I think from our perspective was to see the, that there is still some, some risk aversion, you know, for new authors. So I guess a question for Hollis and for Christy first. Do, do new authors absolutely need an agent? Self-servingly, yes, but um, I, funnily enough, I thought you were going to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I think yes, in order to access the commercial publishers. I think if you're looking at an academic publisher or even an academic crossover like Harvard Business Review Press, you probably can do it um, and get access to them without. There's certain things you give up by not having an agent. Your deals are going to be global deals, so there's no way to hold on to the foreign rights to be able to kind of get extra cash to sort of help subsidize the writing and the the publishing of the book. Um, And in the longer term, it becomes more challenging because your editor is employed by the publisher and ultimately their loyalties are to the publisher as much as they wanted to write by their authors. So you need someone that's sort of an in-between person that can help mediate. Um, You know, as conflicts come up, you need someone that can be good cop and bad cop, you know, as you go through that process. So I think for market value and sort of financial reasons, but also for just navigating the complexities and nuances of the process, um, I think it, I do think it is really important to have somebody. 
because my you know my view is that you know agents you don't earn your money at the deal you earn your commission through the process over the long period of time. Right. Hollis, do you take much that comes direct? What's the sort of proportion? Um, you know, not not things that would come on the, over the transom, as it were, that, you know, sort of just someone submits something. Um, it'd be very hard. Actually, I think there's been one instance at HarperCollins in 10 years where someone sent me something and I read it and I thought this is interesting and ended up publishing it. And it's been very successful. So that's an anomaly. In most cases, um, in some cases, you know, I already have a relationship with an author or a potential author. And I've actually made it my job to introduce them to an agent to represent them because I do think there's so much value that an agent can bring. As Christy said, it's certainly in the deal and the submission process. But in many ways, the agent is this integrator for both the author and the publisher. Sometimes there are difficult conversations that need to be had, and an author doesn't understand what the process is or how publishers think. And agents do a really good job of educating their authors, helping them set expectations. They also do a really good job of pushing back on publishers when they're not doing enough or they're not, you know, the, the, we were just, Christy and I were working on something and we were talking about the jacket and Christy had really great ideas. We came up with a great jacket. So I think agents are really valuable. I, I almost would hesitate to work with someone who didn't have an agent because I think they add a lot of value. That said, some agents are very transactional. They're very involved at the, at the submission and deal level, the financial deal level. And then they tend to not want to be as involved in the rest of the process, which is just one model. I think for potential authors, one of the things to think about is what do I want my agent to do? What roles do I want my agent to play? That should figure into how they think about choosing an agent because different agents operate in very different ways. Right. Uh, what, should a, um, what should a new author expect uh, from their publisher? I mean, what kind of interaction should they expect? How frequent? What oh, I think the same interaction that they that a very successful established author should expect from their publisher. I think one of the things that happens when you have a meeting or a phone call with a potential author, you know, the agent has sent the proposal around, you've decided that you're interested or not, and you arrange a time to talk with the authors. I think that's when you sort of figure out how important would this book be to them what style and vision does this editor have for my book? How do they operate? You know, how does communication occur? Does it feel right? I mean, I think it comes down to very vibey, instinctual stuff like, this is a person I feel like I could work with. This is not a person I feel like I could work with. This house made me feel special. I went to that house and I felt like I was on a conveyor belt. You know, I mean, it's just that's part of the process. So I think always before signing a deal, having a conversation at least with the editor, if not the whole team you'd be working with, is really critical. And then an agent does a good job of sort of helping authors understand, you know, this meeting seemed good. Why did this meeting seem bad? Giving them some context for understanding different publishers personalities. Right. So, Christy, we've obviously set up the Brackenbauer Prize to produce a proposal, and we've given some guidance. I'd be interested to hear from the uh, finalists in the room whether that, whether we give enough guidance about how to do a proposal. But somebody starting with a, blank, with a great idea and a blank sheet of paper, what sort of structure should they be looking at in their proposal? I mean, what, what is your one tip that you would give to somebody sitting down to put in a proposal? One tip is hard, um, but... I I'll th- give you two tips. Okay. <laughs> I think just as a sort of general guideline in putting together a proposal, I think the thing that is most important for a writer to understand is that the proposal is both an editorial document and a sales document. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when, when I sit 
with a proposal and, and start to help somebody put it together. What you wanted to do is be an approximation for what the experience of reading the book is going to be. So you want to capture the tone and substance and who the author is. You're telling a story of you know who you are and why you're writing this book and what you hope to accomplish with it. But you're also, you have these dog whistles that you're trying to sound that are embedded in the storytelling of the proposal that if the marketing person is reading the proposal, which hopefully they will be, you know, they hear something that speaks to them and the publicity person is sort of hear something that speaks to them. So it's a soft sell, but it's, it's absolutely a sell. Um, and that nuance is sometimes the hardest thing to conquer, which is it's, it's not a pure editorial document. So as I'm going through it, I think what you want to do is just imagine the environment in which the proposal is being read. So as you're writing an overview and your chapter summaries and your marketing and telling the story of who you are as the author, you want to make sure that you're positioning yourself um, advantageously, but also still keeping it in the tone and spirit of what the book will be. Um, and it's it's a very nuanced uh, kind of writing that you're doing that um, some people, you know, are just get it instantly mm. and other people need more coaching to kind of make sure it's all there. It's quite hard, and I speak from personal experience here, to avoid the proposal becoming just a description of the book yeah. rather than this tone and spirit point. Uh, does that happen a lot that people kind of rather dryly describe their book rather than trying to get the, into the spirit? In the business book market, I think it yeah. does. Yeah. I think in, in other areas of the market, I think it's not as much. I think, you know, what I find in working with people in the business space who are not who would not identify themselves as writers first and foremost what you find is the proposal feels a little slick or it feels a little too salesy or um, like copy um, and you have to kind of strip it down so you know you don't have it doesn't look like a beautiful powerpoint you know it needs to be read and you know you want it very stripped down very simple in style so that someone really reads it um, and, and has the experience of reading it as if they're going to read the book and I think so the voice matters above all else um and then you have to be able to surface the substance of the ideas right um otherwise it does end up feeling quite bland on the page and the people who publish in the business space successfully there's a very strong voice um that leads what they do as well as having all the sort of rigor and you know analytical right storytelling skills. I think that's actually a really important point because it's different than when I started publishing business books where, you know, from the outside and and from many book authors and and readers of business books, I think people saw business books as medicine. You know, I have to read this because I want to get ahead in my company and and that it would be dry and have a lot of figures and tables and look a little bit like a PowerPoint was considered an asset. And I think things have really changed as you know, there's been there have been a lot of books that have been sort of business topics that cross over into general interest, and a lot of general interest titles, nonfiction that cross over into the business world and have a lot of influence. And that's really changed what we on the publishing side find exciting and find commercially viable. But I think it really raises the bar for business writers to be writerly, to have voice, to have a really strong point of view, and to avoid sounding like you know, business speak and brochureware and all of that kind of stuff that that certainly had its place at a time and could be quite successful. I think there's a real, you know, the sniff test is that's not where the market is anymore. The market is much more narrative, storytelling, anecdote, research-based for sure, but an author with a personality and a voice and a point of view. So self-interested question, do journalists have an advantage here, business <laughs> journalists? Yeah, I, d I think that they do to some extent. Y you know, I, in my experience, a lot of journalists have are really great at the reporting and they're really good at the writing the, the quick piece, but figuring out how to turn 
something into 100,000 words or 80,000 words and, cre and create a whole narrative structure, that's a learning curve. So I, I've worked with journalists who get that really well and are already able to do it, but I've also worked with journalists who, you know, know how to do great reporting and, and struggle a little more to figure about what's the narrative arc of this book. Right. I, think, yeah. I, I was going to say, I think the, there's the same kind of question or challenge if you're not a journalist, if you're um, coming from the business side or you're a professor or you're a, a, a practitioner. Andres and I were very fortunate to have some input from Adam Grant, who wrote Give and Take and the originals and is just, you know, was very generous with his time for us. And one of the things that he said is a piece of advice he got was, listen, the reader kind of wants to know how you're thinking about this stuff. Like they want a little portal into your mind. And that's not what you get from necessarily like a formal structured case. It's what you get from this kind of lighter, more mm -hmm. fluid prose. And, and to add a plug for, you know, for agents that's not self-interested, I think that's one of the real values of agents, especially for a new author or a first-time author, is that that proposal, we wrote a very specific proposal for the Bracken Bauer Prize, which we then essentially entirely rewrote with the help of our agents. And I think not only was their experience a great resource, you know, I think most good agents will be willing to share with you proposals that are sort of in the same yeah. genre or, or space uh, as what you're trying to do. So you can just get a sense of, you know, here's what the kind of things that work and here's the kind of things that don't. And that was, for us, that was really invaluable. Right. I want to open uh, to some questions from our finalists or, or observations. I'll start with uh, Miran, who won the Brackenbauer Prize uh, this year. Miran, what questions do you have for our team of expert panelists? Um, so uh, the advice that we've gotten, it's, it's very valuable, but I'm trying to make it more real. And I was just wondering, uh, sort of both for, for Christy and Holly, um, whether, uh, if you can sort of, men and Hollis, sorry, uh, if you okay. can mention any specific sort of authors that you came across, first-time authors, that really stood out and that made you sort of take a chance on them, and what was it that stood out, and how did that story play out? I published a book by Ben Horowitz, who's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, the venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, a few years ago, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it was sort of unusual because he'd already been writing a lot as he'd been a very um, popular blogger among people in that world. And we had a conversation over a couple of years about, you know, what kind of book we could work on. And I guess a couple of things really struck me. Obviously, he had an audience coming to the book before it was even published. We didn't have to build an audience from the ground up. But the second thing was, I mean, he obviously he had a lot of content. He demonstrated that he knew how to write for his audience. But he had this temperament that was really um, pretty remarkable in terms of never having written a book, being a sort of bookish guy um, who'd read a lot of books, but he was a very teachable author. He was incredible to work with. He understood that there was value in the process of working closely with an editor. In that case, I edited him directly. Um, and he learned very quickly, and he worked really hard. And when he was working on the book, he really was committed to being able to meet deadlines and give it all the time it needed. He also, um, I, you know, I think he had sort of reasonable expectations. He was he was doing it with a lot of hope that it would be successful, but he had an understanding of the challenges of publishing. So, you know, he was a first-time author, but he certainly wasn't inexperienced in getting his voice out there. Christy, any, any favorites? like ask you to pick one from among your children. I know. But, I, know. I, think, I think a good example that speaks to your question is my work with Eric Reese, who Hollis yeah. actually introduced me <laughs> to originally. Um, so when I connected with Eric, he had been writing a blog that was very well-trafficked um, and followed in the Valley and amongst the sort of startup set. And, you know, we worked together um, 
for a fairly extensive period of time to start taking, you know, what was the sort of substance of the blog and the stuff he'd been writing and his experience and turning that into a proposal that was successful. Bringing that to market was really interesting because no one really knew anything about the startup world at that point. Lean was, you know, there was a sort of um, misperception, I think, with some publishers that lean meant like starting a business on the cheap. So we, I really think that the work that we did on the proposal and trying to sort of surface those ideas and actually put them into context became really important for introducing him to publishers. So I frankly was surprised that the interest was as high as it was, because even in the meetings that we had, because I brought him out, we did a round of meetings, there was still people were wrestling with not only sort of how did these ideas translate outside of Silicon Valley and people who were really like interested in starting, you know, not even like going out to raise, you know, capital, but like just starting businesses. But then how did that translate into book audience? Because it's not, was not necessarily the case that that audience, which was largely male, um, you know, and sort of tech focused, were going to like walk into a bookstore and buy a book. So I think we did a lot of work on the proposal. He's incredibly uh, savvy, <laughs> savvy, and very. Um, he's very clear-eyed. So in a room, I think those meetings were crucial. Actually, getting people to really understand what he was trying to do. And then there were, you know, there were challenges later on when the book came out of how do we tap into that grassroots movement that existed in a very sort of like unstructured way out in the world, and then harness that into something that translated into publishing and to people who buy books on Amazon and that buy them in print and respect copyright and DRM and like a lot of the sort of, um, you know, ancillary things. Obviously, like at this point, it was very successful and he's just published a second book. But um, but I think that was one where we really had to lay the tracks for what it was going to be. And we had to be really strategic about how we introduce him and then how we launched that book. That first book is all is described sometimes as the Bible of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So I think if you've got a book that somebody compares to the Bible, you're doing okay. <laughs> so. it. It only looked like the Bible in retrospect. I think that was... Um, well, probably the Bible, looked, looked, not like really... the Bible in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, do you have any questions for our panel? Absolutely. Uh, well, so suppose you've been approached by agents because of the contest and you have different companies to work with from different geographies. How do you distinguish between people to work with? Yeah, on the agent side? Yeah. Um, well, Christy would have a thought here too. I think, again, it comes back to do I feel like I could work with this person? Do they understand what I'm trying to do? Would they support it and enhance it and contribute value to the entire process? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it sometimes just comes down to Sometimes I think about whether when I'm thinking about acquiring a book, and it probably applies to working with an agent from an author's perspective, when this manuscript comes in, will I be as excited about it as I am now? And will I enjoy the process of working together? That sounds very non-commercial to admit that because we should be saying, will it deliver? Will it, you know, will it earn out? All that kind of stuff. But the truth is it's a very relationship-driven business, and relationships are very close and very intimate, and they're, long, they're long-lasting. I mean, you started your book in 2015 it's coming out in 2018 so you have i think it's important after all of the pragmatic and practical issues are discussed to to consider whether these feel like people i would enjoy working with i think there's also an element particularly as a first-time author who is kind of relying on or leveraging an agent to help position your ideas and your proposal for a you know a commercial market there's a real need to work with someone who you feel like understands your ideas. And we were in a similar position where we got to chat with really five or six different agents. Um, and, and with them 
there were three in particular who we thought got what we were trying to do. And, you know, you, you should think about it kind of like a job interview, like you're hiring these people because that that's really what you are doing. And so not only is that question of do you enjoy working with them and do you trust them and, and all of those sorts of things, not only is that very important, it's also important what can like sort of how can they take your idea and and make it better? Because this whole thing is a learning experience for everybody, you know, both at the line level as they might have input on, you know, what's snappy in terms of prose, but also on the idea level. And so one of the things that we asked our agents is they read our Brackenbauer proposal. And one of the things we asked them to do is, okay, what, how would you take this? Where would, what direction would you take this in? How would you set us up to, to start thinking about how to rewrite this for, you know, for a commercial publisher? And we got sort of two different answers or three different answers from the, the two or three people we, we asked and one of them really resonated with us and it seemed like okay these these folks get our idea um and so yeah how much how much power christy does a new author have in this i don't want to paint this as a kind of trumpian zero-sum game but i mean that does a new author with a great idea have as it were bargaining power in the discussion either with you and other agents or indeed with the uh, with the publishers yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like anything else, I think if you have something that people want, it gives you, you know, leverage to um, be able to be, you know, discerning and to take your time in terms of making a decision. And I think I think the editorial piece of this and having like that stewardship on the page is, is crucial because it's a long, it's not just the proposal, it's the book, <laughs> yes. it's, it's everything. Um, but the one thing I will say to your question, though, is um, the people, the, there are agents who tend to reach out to people who check HBR and they check different publications and they tend to reach out, but there are some who don't. And so I think if you limit yourself to people who, well, it's very nice to have people sort of knocking on your door. I think what you want to do is do your own research to figure out who are the agents who are working successfully in your space and make sure that you're actually talking to the the ones who are best suited, not just the representative sample who have actually reached out. Um, You know, I've worked with people who have had a lot of people, you know, Susan David, for example, you know, she had 12 people, agents. And there's a lot of us out there now mm. um, knocking on her door after her HBR piece on emotional agility. Uh, but she really wanted to figure out who was the best person for her. And so we, we she ended up meeting with a handful of people even beyond that. Um, and we ended up working together on the basis of editorial and and just vision for what she wanted to do. Um, where, she, where do you want it to go? Like, what's the life beyond the book? And where does the book fit into the larger, you know, sort of career objectives and making sure that you're all on the same page so you understand what your objectives are and you're all working in the same direction. Right. So, so I mean, I think an author has a lot of leverage because you can yeah. always say no. Um, you know, if you have one, if you send something out and there's only one agent that wants to do it, either you got really lucky and you found exactly the right agent that has the same idiosyncratic view of the world that you do, um, or you really need to pull back and look at the material and take the feedback in as hard as it may be and figure out whether you're not sort of on the wrong track. In some right. way. Alex, a question for our team? Absolutely. This has been very helpful, and it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, Lean Startup and Hard Thing About Hard Things, both fabulous books in the startup space. All three of us have written um, about the startup space. In my day job as a venture capitalist, there seems to be a lot of similarities. It's very relationship-driven. It tends to be very long-term. Um, uh, one of the dimensions also about startups is that there's a power law of returns where a few do- a few startups dominate the category. Um, I'd be really curious to hear how you think about the book industry, whether or not that dimension uh, plays out, but also, you know, within VC, there's also different strategies, stage, ca- you know, uh, sector, et cetera. How you think publishers think about the different categories of books they look at and how that varies? Um, 
Well, sometimes we, I joke that I'm an intellectual venture capitalist, so the connection um, is there. You know, I think about a, a portfolio of things I'm publishing, so that context is figuring into things I'm considering today. What else do I have coming that might be similar, or I published something like that already, and I either, you know, decided it was for me or not for me. So that context is always figuring into the decision-making process, timing, um, you know, how soon will the manuscript... I mean, there are just a lot of factors that are figuring into it. In, in your world, it may be the case that there's, you know, I need six investments in this sector and four in this one, and it's not nearly as rational as that. It's much more a matter of taste and context and where do I think the market is going and where do I get excited? I mean, there's some places where the market's going and I'm thinking I'm not excited about that. I don't know that I'd be the best person to do that. It's not my thing. There are other areas where I feel very strongly and, you know, feel like I would definitely be doing it. So it's, it's, it's much more tactile than it is. I wish I could tell you I have a grid and I'm slotting into my grid and, you know, making everything work in some kind of logic. But it's taste, it's preference, it's based on experience of what's worked in the past. This feels like it models around something that I know has been very successful that has these kinds of attributes, and I think that will lead to success. But, you know, there are definitely times when I've seen something and thought that will probably be very successful, but it isn't the kind of thing I, I want to publish. Right. There have been other cases where I think something is probably going to have, in terms of the pure commercial value, be a more modest endeavor, but I think it's an important book, and I want to publish it, and I think it will lead to something, you know, more. I think this author has um, more books than him or her. So it's, it's just a whole bunch of factors that go into an investment. The thing is that once we make the investment, we go all the way to the finish line, unless, you know, something happens and an author can't deliver what we need to publish. But, you know, we're committed all the way through. So that's the other thing is to think it doesn't matter if I'm investing, you know, $50,000 or a million dollars, I'm committed to the book. I'm committed and my team is committed and we're all going to give it the attention it deserves. And so I think sometimes authors think the size of the advance completely equates with how much time and money and, and um, leverage you have with a publisher. And, it, you know, to some extent that it's certainly a signal, but it's not the only factor we consider. Christine, last, last word on this. You're an intellectual venture capitalist. No, I feel, I feel the same way. It's funny, I have a different model for how the, the VC world applies, which is, you know, getting investment capital from a publisher and reinvesting it back into the publication and sort of guiding authors into, like, yeah. where to take that money and sort of apply it strategically so that the book ends up, like, you know, sort of being more successful down the line. Um, but I, I would just agree with everything that Hollis said. I think, you know, it's important to understand what kinds of books and what areas of the market you do well with. We end up developing, like, sub-specializations where you sort of know the landscape, you know the buyers, you know the media, you know what the rollout's going to look like. Um, and so you tend to look at those more seriously. Um, but you're also guided by things of, you know, there's a process of discovery and publishing that's mm. the most exciting part of doing the work that we do, which is discovering something that feels new and fresh and completely unlike anything you've seen. It's often the hardest stuff to conquer and crack, but it gives you like the highest validation when it, you know, when it works. So I think we're, we're governed by that same sense of like, I feel like I'm onto something new and there's something that can have real impact in the world. Otherwise, I agree with everything else. <laughs>
Thank you. Well, we're out of time. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, you can read more about the uh, Brackenbauer Prize at ft.com slash Brackenbauer. We will be starting the hunt for the 2018 winner in spring next year. But get writing if you are interested and eligible. And we look forward to seeing your entries come the middle of 2018. I'd like to thank our panel, Christy Fletcher from Fletcher & Company, Hollis Heimberg of HarperCollins, Chris Clearfield, author of the soon-to-be-published Meltdown, and our finalists in this year's Brackenbauer Prize, Michael Matala, Alex Lazaro, and this year's winner, Merangul. I'm Andrew Hill. Thank you for listening.